Hello, and welcome to the Nature City Podcast, the show where we get to know our wild neighbors. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Joe Dorning to learn about the lives of urban foxes and what inspires us to love nature. I'm Adrian Werner, your host and fellow naturalist. This is episode six, The Lives of Foxes. Let's put on our shoes and see what's out there. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Dorning, and I have a PhD in the study of urban red foxes. What got you interested in the work you do? So I always, I've grown up in a, a country village and my grandparents were farmers. So from an early age, my whole family was getting me into nature. We used to go on a lot of nature walks, collecting berries in the autumn. And my dad used to take me bird watching. So I've always noticed nature and been interested in that. And then I studied zoology at university because I wasn't really sure what to do at that point. And I thought, I'll just go with the thing that I find the most interesting. And then after that, I realized I wanted to learn a bit more detail about how animals behave, particularly wild animals, because they're free to do whatever they want. They can roam wherever they want. Why do they do what they do? I just got very curious about that. So that's how I got into the line of research. So I went to Bristol to do my PhD in the behavior of wild foxes living in the city. Specifically with studying urban foxes, what are some of the things that we can learn from this kind of work? It's useful for looking at how animals have adapted to living with humans. You can do comparison studies between urban and rural environments and compare the differences with that, but it's also, they're very convenient to study. So urban populations of animals are very accessible to us. So it's easier, you don't have to plan your field work to go out in the middle of nowhere. So I quite enjoyed that about my research. You can go home at the end of the day and it's only like a half hour drive, but also you can use it as a way to get people more interested in nature, right? So by engaging the community, you can help them notice what's going on in their local area and you can get people to help you volunteering. I got a few people to help me with identifying photos. So I think that's beneficial as well. If we want to get people to live more in harmony with wildlife rather than complaining about them and trying to eradicate them, I think it's useful to help people understand the wildlife that they're living with. And I think urban ecology and understanding animals in urban areas is going to help towards that goal. What do you think it takes for people to uh, get excited? Um, Do you think it's similar to your experience or do you think there are other ways that can lead people into being passionate about nature? I think it's definitely easier to get excited about nature if you've grown up with people in your life showing you how interesting nature can be. Like I had my family and my grandparents. But if you haven't had that influence for an early life, I think it can be a bit hard to get curious about nature because you just haven't had anyone pointing it out to you. I also think growing up in cities surrounded by technology can make people a bit more disconnected from nature as well. But I think it is possible to change views, especially for children. So at schools, you can go on field trips, you can make it into a game. So say playing I spy with finding flowers and animals if you get them outside and just getting them to physically experience nature in person. For example, my partner is actually one of the people that just doesn't notice nature. He grew up in a city. His parents are not fans of nature. They just don't really care about going to zoos or anything like that. But we recently visited a cave system in Brazil and he was actually amazed by the tour guide's description of the cave's ecosystem. (laughs) The fruit-eating bats roosted in the cave and then produced droppings and then the crickets went into the cave and ate the bats' droppings, and then the spiders ate the crickets. So we could see the bats and the droppings in the cave. Like you could see the whole ecosystem just in one place. And to me, this was pretty basic ecology that I learned at school. 
but he hadn't really been interested in biology at school. And he was mesmerized by this concept of equilibrium. So I think he only really got curious about nature when he experienced it in person. And he only noticed those things because he was with someone who pointed them out. So it's just about being with people that are going to point things out to you. Yeah, that makes sense a lot to me. I know when I'm walking around bird watching or identifying plants or whatever I'm doing, um, people will always drop by and be like, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know, I get those questions really often. Yeah. Yeah, the number of times I walk in my local nature reserve and I'm, I'm watching a fox because there's a lot of foxes in uh, in London where I live now. And people just don't notice. They just walk straight past and don't see. And it's like, just look around. <laughs> but some people just don't have their eye in. I think it also helps to make nature relatable. So during my studies, I engaged with a lot of locals putting cameras in their gardens. And this helped to get them more interested in what was going on in their own backyard. So I was sending them pictures of, oh, this is all the animals that have been in your garden this week. And they didn't even notice because it was often at night and they weren't looking out the window. And they're like, wow, there's just so much going on out there that we did not know. And then some of them got more interested in looking outside as a result and bought their own cameras, especially people with young children as well. They got more interested in exploring their own local environment. So that was really good. Just making nature relatable. What's going on on, on your own doorstep? This is a question that I know can be controversial, so please don't answer it if you're not feeling comfortable. But I noticed in your study that you chose to name the individual animals. What led to that decision rather than, say, numbering them? In the past, when we were just catching and tagging animals and releasing them, we didn't use names, we just used numbers. But I identified about 190 different individuals, and to remember all those different numbers would be impossible. So I decided to name them with themes for the different territories. So each territory had a different name theme. So one of them was trees. So the foxes were called Hazel and Ash. And then there was another one which had to do with movie characters. So I had Harry for Harry Potter and Buffy for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It made it more interesting when you're looking at photos all day identifying foxes. It makes them more relatable for the people whose gardens that they're visiting. So when I send people photos, it's nice to say, oh, this is Harry and this is all the photos of him in your garden. It just makes them more relatable. Were people able to identify them too? Do you think that has continued now that they have names? Yeah, definitely. Because once they know that they've got a name, then they start to realize that actually it's not just the fox, it's a fox, one of many. And some of them did start using the name I'd given them. So that was quite nice. <laughs> hmm. I think also over time, you do start to get quite attached to some of the animals that you study. Over like a couple of years, you get to know them quite well, all their different postures and even just looking at photos of them so I like to name them but that's just my view. Yeah I think especially when you're doing a research project that involves public education that relatability of a name is really important that's <laughs> that's my opinion as well. Something that I really enjoyed about your research papers was at its heart to me it felt about getting to know those individual animals and I think with those relationships that can be really engaging but it's definitely also a major challenge. What are some of the challenges that you face when you're doing this kind of individual animal research? I guess the biggest challenge is you need to be able to identify the individuals accurately because you don't want to be assuming that two animals are the same animal when they're actually not or the other way around. So this can be easy if you have a species such as a tiger or a giraffe where they have quite unique coat patterns. There's even software out there that you can use to 
identify pictures of individuals automatically, but with more accuracy than human can sometimes. There's been a few studies in animals like lions and sea lions and polar bears where you can tell from the pattern of the spots around their whiskers who's who. But for animals like foxes with fewer individually distinguishable markings, it's very hard to tell them apart and it has the danger of skewing your results or interfering with your results if you don't do a good job of identifying who's who. So how in your research did you address that problem? Yeah, so there's a few different options and it depends on the budget and the research questions that you want to ask. The most simple and cheap is just is ear tagging. So in Bristol, you set traps around the different territories, you catch the fox and then you just punch an ear tag, which is like a plastic tag that they use for sheep with a number on and a colour. And then you enter that into a database and then you catch the fox again at some other point or not. And then that's the second data point for that individual. So it's called mark and recapture. So that's really useful for studying long-term survival and dispersal. So you can see which foxes have survived since you last caught them and if they've changed territory or where they popped up next on the map. Another type of tag you can use is basically a microchip. So you can set up little sensors around the territory of frequently visited places like burrow entrances or holes under fences, feeding stations, which will scan the microchip when the animal puts their head there. So these are quite good for studying visitation to key sites in an area, although I'm not sure how reliable they are because the position of the microchip has to be just right. And then I guess the most well-known method is using a GPS collar. So these record regular locations at specific time intervals, so say every hour or even every five minutes based on satellites. This is the most accurate data, but also incredibly expensive. So it's in the region of thousands of pounds per tag. So this is only really good if you have a big budget research project and only good if you want very high density data, but for a specific couple of individuals over a long period of time. So my research group at Bristol decided to use radio telemetry. So this is also a collar that emits a high radio frequency. And then you can use an antenna to detect the frequency when you go out into the territory. So you have to be quite close, like within a couple of kilometres, but you can detect the signal with like a big antenna. You hold it up at night, it looks very dodgy and all the neighbours are like, what are you doing? Are you recording me? (laughs) I was going to say in an urban area, that must be very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, especially at four in the morning, people are looking out the window like, what are you doing? Because you're stood outside someone's house (laughs) with an aerial. But usually you can give them a card or something and explain what you're doing. Um, So that's what we used in Bristol to track foxes. It is quite labour intensive, but it means you can follow them wherever they go. So we've got a lot of interesting and important findings from that kind of method. Then I didn't mention camera traps, actually. That's what I use for my PhD. Over time, you build up a portfolio or a library of images of different individuals. So the more photos you look at, the more you start to notice slight differences between them, difference in body shape, difference in ear shape, difference in coat colour and tail posture, things like that. Just very subtle differences. But over time, you start to view different animals from different angles and in different light conditions and in wet or dry weather and in different positions and over time it's a very gradual process you start to distinguish them so I developed some kind of library of images of each individual fox that I studied from different angles of course over time they're going to change their appearance as well so there needs to be a continuous addition to that library making sure you monitor any small changes in the animal for example one might get an injury You need to know that it's the same animal and not a new one with that injury. Are there advantages to that, say, over radio collars or other methods to track individual animals? 
Yes, definitely. Because if you use a non-invasive technique like camera trapping, you can get 24 hour surveillance of a whole network of different camera sites if you want, all at the same time without actually having to be there in person. So you can get a lot of data quite cheaply and very easily and with good coverage. So you get better group size estimates and you can get year round observations. And you can look at the social dynamics if you can identify the individuals. And then you don't need to catch the animal. You don't need to remove them from their natural environment, put them through that stress. And you also don't have the bias of only being able to record information from animals you've captured. So some animals will never enter a trap. They're just not brave enough to go in. They're not curious about going near the thing that you want to use to catch them. So then that's a percentage of the population that you just have no information about and because we want to know about all the individuals, because we're looking at individual differences. You don't want all your data to be based on only the bravest animals in that population. You want to know about all of them. So I'm a big advocate for camera traps, for ecology studies. That reminded me a little bit. Um, you allude that this is part of a larger research study that's been going on for many years. Do you be able to explain a little bit about how that large-scale study works? It's uh, the longest-running urban fox project in the world, I think. It's been going since the 70s. We've got a big database of foxes that we've caught and recaptured over the years. And that long-term data set is very valuable in ecology because sometimes studies, you only get funding for a few years. And then after that, the funding dries up and the study ends and you just don't get any more data. But this one's been going on for 40 odd years. So that's a very rich data set that you can use to track changes over time. One of the really interesting findings that researchers before me in this group have found was the impact of a mange outbreak a couple of decades ago, really, in Bristol. And so because of this long term data set, you could look at territory size or fox movement behavior using radio tracking from records that were taken before and after the disease outbreak to see how this impacted the population. So it affected territories, right? So territories before were these contiguous tessellated hexagons, very small because the population was very high because in cities there's a lot of food around and so you don't need to have such a big territory to get all the resources that you need. So that was before the mange outbreak. Then after that, territories structures completely changed so they were still touching but they expanded because a lot of foxes died so the population was less dense group sizes were smaller and territories were larger because they wanted to keep the boundaries touching each other hmm. and then after that has it refragmented into smaller and smaller groups as the population rises again exactly yeah it's gone back to how it was so it just shows how flexible the social structure is in foxes, and I'm sure it's the same with other animals as well. It's really interesting to see how they respond to big events like that and how their behaviour and social structure changes. Yeah, that is really interesting. What do you think the value of studying individual animals is? Like humans are all different, animals are all very different. We all respond to scenarios in different ways, and this defines how society is structured and how it functions. So I think the real value in studying individual differences is in understanding social behaviour and society in animals. So, for example, in my research, I found that subordinate foxes visited low quality feeding sites more often than dominant foxes did. So this suggested that the subordinate foxes might be experiencing competition with other foxes in their group at the best feeding sites. And they were adapting to this by finding alternative food sources. So just understanding the difference between who uses which type of patch and which quality of patch and how this relates to the individual helped 
me to identify which social pressures different individuals might be experiencing at any point in time. So the dominant foxes clearly didn't experience the competition, so they didn't need to find alternative food sources. But the subordinates were experiencing competition, so they had to find an alternative strategy to eat. Hmm. Were there any other insights you had from studying those individual animals in that population? Yeah, so looking more at the very individual level, there was one social group where the dominant male died or disappeared at some point during the middle of my study. And then this caused a massive social disturbance in the surrounding territories. A lot of individuals from surrounding territories then started to come and visit. So I was picking them up on cameras in this territory where the dominant male had disappeared. So all the neighbours were coming in and investigating what had happened and probably trying to figure out if they could move in and replace him. So this only took a matter of days for them to notice that something had changed. So they were going around and investigating this. I also noticed a lot of this extraterritorial exploration. So foxes moving between different territories away from where they usually spent time throughout the whole year. So in the fox research done by other scientists before me, the common assumption was that foxes only explore other territories during certain times of year, mainly during the dispersal season when younger foxes are looking for a new territory to go to, or during the mating season when they're looking for mating opportunities outside of their own territory to avoid inbreeding. But actually, the way that I could identify individuals from camera traps in multiple neighbouring territories helped to understand that foxes actually move around between territories throughout the whole year. So they're constantly checking out what's going on with the neighbours just so that they can take advantage of any opportunities that come along or taking advantage of a new food source or a vacancy in a territory that they could move into. That was one of the things that I found was really interesting is that seasonal variation that you observe and also the territory differences, the social groupings of the ones who tended to associate closely versus the ones who didn't associate as closely. Is there any interesting insights you found about the differences between those different territories? Identifying individuals helped me to look at relationship strength between different pairs of individuals between and within territories. So I did notice that within territories, foxes were more often spending time together than they would be with foxes from neighbouring territories. So this just confirmed the idea that we had where foxes do live in a social group. I don't think that they are as social as other animals are. So, for example, lions, they hunt together, they work together, but foxes don't work together. They forage alone. They don't really help each other that much. They don't even really need to help each other raise cubs, although they do sometimes. So they are still socialising on some level and more within their social group than outside of it. So this suggests that um, although they may not need to live together to survive, it might be what we call the best of a bad job strategy. So it helps them to maintain positive relationships with other foxes that they are sharing a territory with just so that they can mitigate any aggression that might arise over shared resources. So if I'm understanding that correctly, there are multiple foxes on a single territory that are loosely associated and more closely associated to other foxes on that same territory than the foxes that live in neighboring territories. Yeah. One of the things that I was a little unsure about is how are territories established? Like, are there fairly rigid boundaries to those territories? Are they fairly flexible? So all territories that foxes have are touching 
So it's like a series of hexagons all tessellated together. And in urban areas, they tend to use visible dividers. So say a road would be a really good boundary between two territories or in rural areas, a hedge or just some kind of line so that they can walk along and scent mark. Having worked with urban foxes and the people who live within those ranges, what have you learned about wildlife-human interactions over the course of your work? So when it comes to foxes, all the people I spoke to, they can be quite polarised in their opinion. Some people don't notice foxes at all. They just didn't pay attention to them. But most people that I spoke to, they either loved them or they hated them. For the people that did love the foxes, I think they got a lot of joy from seeing them in their garden, especially elderly people, people that lived alone. They used to treat them almost like pets. So I knew a lot of people that used to buy food specifically for foxes and put it out in their garden each night for the foxes to come. And the foxes learn that these are reliable food sources. And then they come very regularly every night as soon as it gets dark. Sometimes they even sit waiting for the person that lives there to go and put the food out. And at least two or three different people, they used to even hand feed the foxes. I don't recommend that. I don't think that's a good idea. But I mean, they had such a bond with these animals that they would do that and they would go and sit in the garden and just watch them for hours. So I think they can bring people a lot of joy, but also some people really don't like them. (laughs) Did you find yourself having to manage that conflict? Um, Sometimes, yes. So the way that I found my field sites was going around and knocking on doors and handing out leaflets and surveys and asking, are you seeing foxes in your garden? Do you put food out for them? And some of the responses I got back were quite angry. So that was awkward, but everyone's entitled to their opinion. And I know foxes are quite contentious, especially in the UK. There's a lot of polarised opinions about things like fox hunting. So I kind of expected it. But on the whole, after I'd found my field sites, I only worked with the people that liked the foxes. So that made things easier. (laughs) Through the course of your work, I imagine you were getting a lot of questions about foxes. What were the kind of questions that people would ask you? So I was working with urban dwelling people, people living in suburbs with gardens and sometimes quite nice gardens that they were very proud of and spent a lot of time maintaining. So they didn't appreciate foxes going in and digging for worms in the autumn or raiding their vegetable patch to eat some of the berries. Or sometimes they would play with gardening gloves that had been discarded. So for the people that didn't like foxes, it was usually how can I keep them out of my garden? I mean, you you can't for certain keep them out because they're wild animals and they're very curious they're going to go wherever they want to go but you can reduce the attraction so blocking holes tidying away things like shoes that they might want to play with and for people with vegetable patches and plant life you can put protective mesh around there there's also stuff you can buy that you can put down like smelly stuff or I've even heard that sprinkling chili pepper can deter foxes I'm not sure if that works so you can put things down to try and deter them. Um, So that was one of the most common questions. Another one that I get more now that I live in the city and I'm hanging out with people that don't really know much about foxes at all is, um, what does the fox say? Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) I get that all the time. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, So they actually say a lot of things. They've got around 20 different calls. So that video was kind of, I think... I'm not sure how accurate it was, to be honest, but they do get the idea that it says a lot of different things, and that's true. <laughs> when you, you had mentioned about uh, things to deter, I know we have a very large urban coyote population. I don't know if it's the same with foxes, but coyotes are quite change-averse. If you change the habitat, they get very 
nervous. So apparently one of the things is having a very brightly colored plastic chair that you can put in the middle of the lawn just every once in a while and it spooks them enough <laughs> that they won't come back, which is fascinating to me. Well, that's good if it works because that's quite an easy change to make to your garden. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, low stress compared to catch and relocate strategy, which, you know, isn't great for territorial animals. Uh yeah, and certainly if you did that with foxes, it would be completely ineffective because there would be a new one within a week coming in and taking its place. Yeah, especially if you caught the dominant male by accident, you would send the social You'd get more foxes coming. Yeah. <laughs> Are there things about fox behavior or ecology that would be useful to know to understand foxes in general? It's nice to know what foxes are doing at different times of year. So right now is the mating season. So they're spending a lot of time exploring mating opportunities, not only in their own territory, but in other territories. So that's why you hear them at night shouting and screaming at each other. And that's the really horrendous screeching you can hear that sounds like a woman shouting. That's a fox long distance contact call to try and stay in contact and perhaps also advertising themselves. I'm here, come and find me. But then in spring, well, that's when the females are pregnant. So they're spending more time in their local territory and building up fat reserves, checking out dens. So then you might find foxes start coming under your decking in your garden or in your shed, like they're looking for a safe place to have their litters. Well, the cubs are born in middle of April and then they'll start to emerge end of April. And then by the summer, they're becoming more independent, leaving the den and exploring the territory more. So towards the late summer, that's when cubs are in their teenage phase, so they don't need their parents to be feeding them anymore. And that's when a lot of people start complaining about foxes making a mess in their gardens because these cubs are very bored and curious and they just want to play with everything. And they're exploring their territory. They're finding new stuff to do. And they can be digging holes in your garden and making a nuisance of themselves. They're play fighting with each other. So one thing I would advise if people are worried about that or they get annoyed about it is it's not going to last forever. It's just a phase, it's just for a couple of weeks while they're doing that particular thing at that moment in that annual life cycle, and then they'll move on and do something else soon. So as you go into autumn, that's the dispersal season for foxes. So these cubs that were born earlier in the year will be almost adult-sized and starting to look around in the neighbouring territories for somewhere new to live outside of where they were born. So that's when you see a lot of foxes being killed on roads as well, because they're crossing unfamiliar terrain. How long does an average fox live about uh, in the city? In the city, like five or six years. But there was one that I knew that was 11. Wow. And, so, and I think a lot of them die before they even get to one, because juvenile foxes not having any road sense and being killed on roads, or cubs, they get sick and die, or they get malnourished. But once you hit one year or, or something, then you're probably going to survive until five or six years old. Mm. There's plenty of food in the city. And if they can avoid being hit by cars, which is the main cause of death, then they're going to live good life. Hmm. Interesting. So there's yeah more food availability, but also more danger, I guess, <laughs> for, for a fox. Yeah. It's very beneficial for them to be adaptive when it comes to living with humans. So taking advantage of fallen food and also being friendly with humans in their gardens because you never know who might feed you. <laughs> True. Thank you so much for taking all of the time out of your day to meet with me. And it's really been wonderful to learn a little bit more about urban foxes from you. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. 
foxes have always been a part of Wild About Saskatoon's identity, so I was excited for the opportunity to speak with Dr. Joe Dorning in December 2020 to learn more about their lives. Throughout the podcast, we've talked about how we recognize the individual animals we interact with. Using cameras and radio callers, Dr. Dorning was able to understand more about foxes' social behavior. I was fascinated to learn that foxes share their territory and are constantly monitoring the happenings in the ones nearby. Like many of the animals we have discussed on the show, foxes in cities can be a source of human-wildlife conflict. However, by understanding what they are doing and why, we can build better relationships. Reflecting on this episode, I was struck by the relationships people developed with the foxes in their backyards. Unlike some wildlife, it is possible to recognize individual foxes with time and practice, and a camera trap is a non-invasive way to watch wildlife in your yard. Like many citizen scientists, the relationship with our wild neighbors can be a source of wonder and curiosity that inspires us to notice the world around us. So, make sure to watch and listen for foxes right here in Saskatoon. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned.